This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. to start off by wishing you a happy Valentine's Day and remind you that you probably should do something special today for your special person, comma, or face the consequences. I'd like to start out today's program with two bits of feedback we have gotten from the audience. That's you. One longtime listener pointed out that the show a few weeks back was better than the show that came the week after, and I think he was right. Owing to the fact that the show that he liked was well thought out and, uh, well, we had it all lined up beforehand, which, as you might imagine, is not always the case. And while he was mentioned in the show that he liked, (laughs) his point was valid. Luckily, today's show is better mapped out than most, so we expect good things to follow. Second piece of advice I got was from listener Edward McMillan, who has to listen to every minute of all these shows. He suggested I might not continue on the suggestion I made at the end of last week's program that we would continue to talk about Kuiper Belt objects in this show. I must confess I have a weakness for what we've learned about these really interesting objects orbiting the sun, things that are smaller than planets. We will do that in the future, but not today, except for a couple small points. The first being that a lot of science writers are mixing up the term dwarf planet with minor planet. They are not the same thing. A minor planet is any rock orbiting the sun that is not large enough to where it will conform its shape into either a sphere or an oblong ellipsoid. Your future meteorite out in space is a minor planet. And yes, I did make allusion to talking about the controversy over the discovery of Haumea, which is not only a minor planet, but actually probably is also a dwarf planet. It's not certain, but it probably is. It's a hell of a story of scientific intrigue, and we will hit it in the future. Because we do have some breaking news as regards minor planets. In this case, the object known as 2014 MU69, which was renamed, to be catchier, Ultima Thule, As we report on this program, on January 1st, the New Horizons mission, which had gone and taken a wonderful look at Pluto, was reassigned a second part of its mission to take a look at this object, Ultima Thule. It did so, and uh, we were treated with our first look at a Kuiper Belt object, which was initially reported as being something like a bowling pin, two objects that were basically touching One they called Ultima, the other one they called Thule. Nicknames, of course. But guess what? New Horizons, as it did with Pluto, was asked to take a look back once it had passed the object and get a shot where it was basically backlit. That famous photo taken of Pluto where you see the atmosphere so clearly and and all the structures along the, the the perimeter of the planet is one of the great, great photos ever taken in astronomy, in my opinion. This one taken of Ultima Thule will not quite make that great, but it did show something nobody expected. In the words of Chief Investigator Alan Stern, it would be closer to reality to say that 
Ultima Thule's shape is flatter, like a pancake. Now they're saying that the part they're calling Ultima is the pancake, and the part they're calling Thule is more like a walnut. This was not detected upon its approach to the object because its axis of spin meant that it was like, say, looking down at a table from above and seeing the pancake and walnut on the table, spinning in the plane of the table. That was a great puzzle as the New Horizons uh, spacecraft approached the object that it was not varying in brightness, and now we know why. Had the axis around which it orbits gone through any other direction, we'd have known that it was a pancake a long time ago. Anyway, we're looking forward to talking more about these objects in the future, and we'll again try to get Mike Brown from Caltech to uh, maybe tell us personally what uh, what transpired in that controversy over the discovery of Haumea, which by all rights really should have gone to Brown. One thing I'm sorry about as regards to these fantastic uh, photos and discoveries we're making out in deep space is that the great Isaac Asimov is not here to see it. The legendary writer passed away in 1990. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Isaac Asimov is kind of one of our heroes and a guy whose very clear gift for being able to explain the complex is something we try, and sad to say often fail, but we do try to imitate. I'm holding in my hand a copy of his, his wonderful volume titled The Relativity of Wrong. It's as good a collection of scientific essays as, as I think you can find anywhere. And I plan to quote from it at great length when we do talk about those objects out in the distant solar system. It's amazing the degree to which Asimov correctly anticipated some of the findings we would subsequently make. I want to forward promote some guests we're going to bring on the show in the future. Jerry Polikoff, political writer, will be with us probably on next week's program or, or the week after to talk about the mainstream media in this country, and how it has fallen down on its job, shall we say. This correspondent is also planning to go see Tim Wu. His talk will be titled Inside Tech Monopolies. He'll be speaking at the Commonwealth Club next week. Tim Wu has a new book out, and we are keen to hear him talk about it, read the book, and hopefully bring him on as a guest. We'll give it a go. I believe that Tim Wu's talk will be centered on the tech monopolies and uh, what they're doing to our lives. A book I'm probably not going to read or bring the authors on to this program is one titled The Myth of Capitalism, but I did like the little blurb by way of book review of it. Mini book review, I guess you'd say. The review came from the Financial Times and said, maybe the free market isn't the source of our economic woes. In this superbly researched book, Jonathan Tepper and Denise Hearn demonstrate that a four-decade-long rise of vast predatory monopolies has choked competition and produced the toxic mix of slow growth and widening inequality felt the world over. They added, this is a truly important book, a call for the kind of antitrust crackdown last seen more than a century ago to protect consumers and competition itself. We've made a point in this program to try and avoid talking about the isms, capitalism, socialism, communism, because in my mind, they are, to everyone who hears those words, a kind of a Rorschach test. They mean different things to different people. But alas, when we start talking about the problems of socialism or the problems of capitalism, things tend to get fuzzy very quickly. And some wise person once pointed out that people often agree on specifics in the world more than they do about their generalities. Those are words of wisdom. I love the Doonesbury cartoon I cut out, oh, over a decade ago, 
where at one point Mike Doonesbury is watching the television and the voice bubble is saying, Romney seems to have grasped early that if our stuff can be made more cheaply in communist countries, well, that's just how capitalism works. To which the reply was, it is? Followed by, I think so. Want me to fact check it? And while we wholeheartedly agree that something's got to be done about these tech companies that are taking over all of our lives, uh, it ain't going to be easy. Felix Salmon points out in Axios.com that Facebook and Google face a potentially significant new tax. At the moment, multinationals that deal in digital products can move profits around the world, shifting them from high-tax countries to low-tax havens such as Ireland. Some countries want to make it harder for the big players to get around local taxes. The UK is proposing a 2% tax on British revenues rather than profits of any tech company. This is a clear swipe at U.S. tech giants. Spain, South Korea, and India are considering similar measures. Internet companies say it's double taxation. But it is noted that oil companies already pay similar taxes. If ExxonMobil can do it, why not Facebook? Much can be done with taxes if we can get <laughs> the right people to monitor how these companies are moving money around, which is, which is going to be a trick. But an effort needs to be made. I cannot share the optimism of freshman Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who believes that we can have a Green New Deal with 70% marginal tax rates on the incomes of top earners. And I've seen people sending around all sorts of messages talking about how back in the 1950s, the top tax rate was 90%. The economy was thriving. I do want to point out that the truly rich people didn't pay 90% tax rates on their income. That's why they developed all sorts of tax shelters and had all sorts of laws written to protect their revenues. Noah Dietrich, a man who worked for Howard Hughes for many decades, wrote in his biography of his life with Hughes that he had a salary of $500,000 a year. He did get stuck with a tax rate of something like 80 or 90%. However, his boss, Howard Hughes, possibly the world's richest man, did not pay that kind of tax rate. So I think the idea that we're going to fix uh, all of our problems by you know, taxing the rich is uh, something of a pipe dream. Not that I, I don't think we need to have a more level playing field for all. I wish we did. I just don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. I still a goal worth striving for. I mean, no less than Warren Buffett likes to point out that the secretaries working for him pay a higher tax rate than he does. And Warren Buffett admits, boy, that's not fair. But I'm pretty sure he's not volunteering to make up the difference. And I do think I need to cite an example of a, a progressive politician uh, running around with his hair on fire, doing what might be more harm than good. In this case, I'm referring to San Francisco's Tom Amiano, who apparently was the driving force around a, a bill that was signed by Jerry Brown back in 2013. It was titled the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, AB 241. This law extended overtime pay rights to certain personal attendants working in homes who were not previously entitled to overtime pay under California law. In the wake of this law, personal attendants are now entitled to overtime pay 1.5 times their regular pay for hours worked in excess of 9 hours in a day or in excess of 45 hours in a week. Well, that seems totally fair, doesn't it? Well, in the generality, yeah. But let's talk about some specifics. I have someone in my neighborhood who I've, uh, I've known for 
for decades and decades. Since I was a kid. At this point in life, she is somewhat enfeebled, but has been living in her own home. It was realized about a month ago that she needs care around the clock. Not nursing care, but personal attendant care. This is something I'm familiar with in my own family, and I'm sure many of you are as well, dear listeners. I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of old folks would like to spend their last years in their own home. They don't want to go to a facility. Some thrive in such facilities, but I think it's fair to say that many, perhaps most, would prefer not to go there. Evidently, the family members of my neighbor got together and looked at the costs that would be involved in having somebody stay 24 hours a day in the house. Now, this is in the Bay Area, mind you, but I got to say, when I heard $22,000 a month, I was shocked. I can't say what a typical nursing home cost is, but my guess would be something on the order of $7,000 a month. Not cheap. But I know from personal experience, by spending a little bit more than that, a couple thousand more than that a month, one can keep an elderly relative in their own house. At least one could as late as 2014, before AB241 kicked in. There are many companies out there that provide this sort of care. I got on the phone and started calling them a couple days ago to inquire about what these costs amounted to, thinking 22000 can't possibly be right. Well, I was informed in the wake of AB241, many companies supplying caretakers to live with people were not a business and had to change how they would supply caretakers because they're, of course, bean counting and trying to avoid that overtime cost of 1.5 times the base pay. Back in 2013, someone might come and stay with a relative and stay there for like four or five days at a flat rate. They might live 40 or 50 miles away, but it didn't matter if they're only doing that commute once a week. Well, now, with overtime kicking in at nine hours, you've got to bring in, well, what these companies are doing is bringing in three different people in a 24-hour period, which is crazy. Now, it seems to me if they'd enacted this law where overtime kicked in, say, at 12 hours, you'd have two people coming in and out of a house on a given day to make this work, and that would make a lot more sense to me. And more importantly, it would keep costs down to where you're not in the, say, $22,000 a month range, which means that your family may decide that really isn't an option for you and you're going into a home. I've talked to a few people of elderly relatives who may be in need of 24-hour care, and everybody is pretty appalled by this. Anyway, I expect to make some more phone calls and talk to some caretakers and have some follow-up on this in the weeks to come. Oh, and one more thing about the rich not paying what some consider to be their fair share. Uh, You can make a good case for this. Joseph Stiglitz wrote a couple years ago in the New York Times that ordinary Americans have every right to feel aggrieved because, put simply, the very rich don't pay their fair share. He was looking back at the what we learned from Mitt Romney and his tax returns and said that multimillionaires take outrageous advantage of a loophole-filled tax code that gives them lower rates for capital gains earnings and big deductions for vacation homes and so-called business expenses. Stiglitz said that after years of Playing on this tilted playing field, the wealthiest 1% now own 40% of the nation's wealth, but paid just 20% of all taxes in 2010. That leaves middle-class families shouldering the bulk of the cost for defense, road building, safety net programs, and education. I have no reason to dispute what Stiglitz says. 
All right, and before I bag on tech companies, which I'm just bound to do today, um, I do want to note that, you know, uh, tech tech can be pretty cool. Last week, as I was in Marin, picking up a desk and preparing it to drive down to the East Bay where I now reside, my friend said, let me check the traffic. And I said, you know, it's fine. I intended to drive my usual route over the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge. He then phoned me up and said, don't do it. Your route home should be down the 101. I thought to myself, come on. But I checked, and uh, yeah, the Richmond Bridge was closed in the wake of large chunks of concrete falling on the cars. So yeah, in this case, I was able to save myself quite a few uh, hours of swearing and cussing and being stuck in a massive traffic jam. So that's good. But I ask you, even if you loved the Back to the Future movies, do we really need to have the Marty McFly self-lacing shoe? Well, apparently Nike thinks we do. And the future has arrived with the Nike Adapt BB, which is their first self-lacing app-controlled shoe created for mass market sales. Evidently, when you press a button on the Bluetooth-enabled sneakers midsole or on its companion app, a tiny motor embedded in the footplate, it tightens the thin cord around your instep and behind your ankle. As the shoe tightens to a tailored fit, it lights up your, in your favorite color and makes a whirring sound described as like a baby transformer waking up. They're only $350. And how about the scooter mania, where these are being forced uh, upon communities all over, uh, all over the West, anyway. Warning, these things have GPS trackers on them. Uh, apparently, police in Austin, Texas, were able to use this to their advantage and catch 19-year-old suspect Luca Mangiarano last January 24th, a month after he robbed a bank because... Of his getaway vehicle. He allegedly entered the BBVA Compass Bank on December 18th, gave a note to a teller reading, This is a robbery, please give me your hundreds and fifties, and everything will be okay. The employee did as directed, and the robber left, then hopped on a jump electric scooter and took off. But scooters, being tied to the GPS tracking system's online accounts, uh, well, they led police to the perp. Is this the upside of tech or the downside of tech? You make the call. How about this datum? According to the UCLA Daily Bruin, UCLA students call about 11,000 Uber and Lyft rides every week that never leave the UCLA campus. Students are often using them to get to and from class. You know, as someone who spent his, uh, his college years bicycling around the UC Davis campus... I would say some some wag needs to find a way to jam the, the phones of the Uber and Lyft drivers and see what happens when UCLA students actually have to walk or bicycle to class. You know, one thing we like to do on this program is follow up on things we've talked about previously. I've got a big pile of such items in front of me, and I think I want to go through them. As follow-up on the frequent whinging we do on this program about how light pollution is ruining our ability to look up at the night sky and appreciate its full beauty, the Chicago Tribune has weighed in on this issue, and one of their writers noted that he was able to find two Chicago suburbs that limit light pollution, Homer Glen, Illinois, and Beverly Shores, Indiana, where they evidently hold stargazing parties on a monthly basis. The paper noted that light pollution 
is so prevalent that many people rarely glimpse the grandeur of our galaxy, and people have started traveling as far away as Chile and New Zealand in search of what has been lost. They note that you don't need to go that far in America. Utah, for example, hosts the world's highest concentration of dark sky parks. And as follow-up on the scientist Hei Jiangqiu, who performed some gene editing on babies to make them supposedly HIV-resistant, well, the Chinese took a dim view of his using CRISPR to do this. He wasn't authorized to do so. He has been fired. The Xinhua State News Agency in China reported the findings of a provincial authority investigation. It found that He had avoided supervision and organized researchers on his own to carry out the work, which they described as illegally conducted and in pursuit of personal fame and gain, quote-unquote. We've talked about gun control on many occasions, and there's a new study out that's raising some eyebrows. According to a January special report by the U.S. Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Statistics, about one in ten state and federal prisoners convicted of crimes involving a firearm said they got the weapon through a retail store like a sporting goods store, pawn shop, or gun show. Meaning, of course, that nine out of ten did not. This prompted Brandon Combs, president of the Sacramento-based Firearms Political Coalition, which is a gun rights advocacy group, to say, quote, the report appears to underscore the fact that violent criminals generally don't follow the law, unquote. And although we have seldom talked about crayfish on Radio Parallax, I was struck by the article in New Scientist magazine, which talked about how crayfish appear anxious after losing their armor. Yes, after they molt and their uh, exoskeleton is soft, they were there had increased levels of danger and apparently are anxious about it. This reminds us of the pitch we got some years back to talk about the scientists at UC Davis who discovered why it was mosquitoes avoided mosquito repellent. We decided there was a lot less there than met the eye. But we're amused when Capital Public Radio took publicists up on this and brought the scientists off on to explain why this was. And of course, their research determined, are you ready for this? Mosquitoes don't like mosquito repellent because they don't like the smell. And as part of our previous discussion on alleged sexual harassment, we we have this. Uh, Apparently Bernie Sanders is now being accused, at least his campaign is being accused of sexual harassment and other misconduct. Bernie appeared on CNN recently and claimed he was unaware of the allegations when they were first raised, saying, I was a little bit busy running around the country. But more than two dozen former aides requested a meeting with Sanders last week to discuss the issue of sexual violence and harassment on the 2016 campaign. A copy of their letter was attained by Politico.com, and uh, apparently his 2016 campaign managers conceded there were problems with gender and race dynamics among the campaign staff. Was it too male? Yes. Was it too white? Yes. Would this be a priority to remedy in any future campaign? Definitely. Here's a suggestion to Bernie's people. Why don't you concentrate next time on winning? I mean, we're all for diversity, but it's also important to win. No, not at any cost. No, not at any cost, but it is you know, somewhere along the way it's important to come out on top. Here's some follow-up we did years ago about the fact that um, 
our DEA and other people that are very, very down on illegal drug use in this country made it impossible for you and I to walk into a pharmacy and walk out with Sudafed without signing a paper saying, I guess, you know, that we're not going to go home and make make crank uh, in our bathtub. We pointed out in this program that that people that manufacture crystal meth and various, you know, shacks out in, you know, out in the country somewhere are using, uh, you know, 55-gallon drums of the precursor elements. They're not taking little blister packs full of Sudafed. The question that never seems to come up is, where are they getting this stuff? And one answer appears to be, reading between the lines in the Economist article on drugs, China. Noted The Economist in his article about synthetic drugs, in the 19th century, China was defeated in two wars against Britain that were caused by British sales of contraband opium produced from Indian-grown poppies. These days, says the magazine, the world's most popular recreational drugs are increasingly made from synthetic ingredients, not plants. The fringes of China's vast pharmaceutical and chemical industries have proved to be good places to produce them. The country is the world's biggest exporter of pharmaceutical ingredients and accounts for one-third of global sales of chemicals. Weak regulation has enabled the diversion of legally produced drugs into underground markets. The magazine notes that when police raided an apartment used by a chemical exporter in the northern city of Jingtai just a year ago, they found a team of English-speaking saleswomen hired to advertise illegal wares on foreign websites. Last month, their boss was among nine people who pled guilty in a Chinese court to producing and mailing narcotics to America. Those drugs included fentanyl, a potent opioid painkiller that has killed tens of thousands of people. When they keep talking about the opioid crisis, they keep lumping together people buying Chinese fentanyl from the mail and doctors trying to prescribe pain-controlling medications. One thing we talked about back in 2003 was Uncle Sam's wacky war on drugs, because at that time, Alternate.org was talking about comedian Tommy Chong, who was beginning a nine-month federal prison sentence for operating a glass-blowing shop that sold pipes to marijuana smokers. Yeah, Tommy Chong did some hard time for selling glass pipes to people who smoke marijuana. Well, it turns out smoking marijuana, at least in California now, is legal per state law. But the feds, those guys running that war on drugs, boy, they're, they're not giving an inch on this. And by the way, I stumbled upon the, I guess you'd call it the BS program uh, that Penn and Teller put on, I guess it was Showtime for years, years, I think a decade and a half. They got pretty good episodes there. The one on the war on drugs is is worth taking in. The one they did on why recycling is BS, I, I don't think they did their homework on. And as follow-up with our special plumbing correspondent, Ivo Kovacevic, who assured us that you cannot, in fact, flush a lot of things down the toilet you've been told you can. Well, New Scientist notes that in the sewers in the UK, disgusting behemoths of fat keep surfacing. To quote from the magazine, the fatbergs are coming. These huge lumps of cooking oil and wet wipes lurk beneath UK streets, threatening to block sewers and put everyone off their lunch. And they're really huge. In 2017, a 250-meter-long, 130-ton monstrosity was found under Whitechapel in East London. 
They quote Thomas Curran at the University of College Dublin, Ireland, saying there's been a rise in the number of fatbergs, and various factors have contributed to it. Growing urban population, aging sewers, a rise in eating out, and our increasing flushing of wet wipes. Fatbergs are made up of fat oil and grease congealed around wet wipes and other things that people shouldn't flush down the toilet, like cotton buds and tampons. A 2017 report by Water UK found that out of solid items that could be identified, 93% of the materials recovered from sewer blockages were non-flushable wipes. Well, thanks to Evo, you heard it here first on Radio Parallax. And finally this. Birth tourism arrests is the headline. Federal authorities charged 20 people last week with running businesses that helped pregnant Chinese women give birth in the U.S. so their children would gain citizenship. Prosecutors said Dong Yuan Li made millions of dollars running You Win USA Vacation Services, charging women between $40,000 and $100,000 to stay in an upscale California apartment and give birth here. The women were coached on how to apply for bogus tourist visas, sometimes with the Trump International Hotel in Honolulu as their destination. They would then fly to Los Angeles for the latter part of their pregnancies. The whole anchor baby thing is true. We called for this sort of thing to be stopped on the show years ago, and I'm glad someone down in Irvine's finally getting around to it. Of course, it's curious that Donald Trump, who's so against people from south of the border coming north, doesn't mind if Chinese ladies book into the Trump International Hotel in Honolulu and then fly to L.A. And darn it, we almost got through an entire segment without mentioning Donald Trump. But we failed. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.